Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, the 10th plague and Exodus. God leads his people, and how does God lead us today? Exodus 12 and 13, Lesson 14 of the Exodus Study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, And once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. A few unexpected things came up, and I do not have the Exodus study done in writing yet for you to purchase on the website. So if you want that for free whenever I get it done, then email me at Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com, and I'll give you a free copy. Now, last week, we talked about the Passover in preparation to this week's lesson. And if you happen to miss that episode, you might want to go back and listen to it because we talked about the preparations that the people would need to do before this last plague happened, but also how the Passover points to Jesus and our salvation and redemption through him. Now, this week, we're going to read about the 10th plague and the Exodus, beginning in verse 12, 28. It says, Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So they did all of the things that God told them to do in the previous episode to prepare. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. But bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So we're going to stop right there for a minute and just do a little summary before we keep going. So God did what he said he was going to and passed by the Egyptians' homes at midnight and killed their firstborn. And what's interesting is it says that Pharaoh rose in the night whenever his son died and so did all of the rest of the people. And so it sounds as if maybe they cried out in pain or something and then it woke the parents up. But then by the time they got to their children, they were already dead. Something of that nature because they didn't just die in their sleep and the parents wake up the following morning to find their children dead. And God had told Pharaoh previously that the last few plagues would cut to his very heart. And it's obvious that this one did because there was no more negotiating at this point. You know, 
Pharaoh's not trying to control anything. He's not even pretending to be sorry about any of how he's treated the people or anything like that. He just wants them gone. So he's like, get out of here. Do what you want to do. And the people are so afraid of what's going to happen to them if they stay, then they're rushing them out too. Okay, so let's see what happens as the people are being rushed out. This is verse 34. It says, So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and couldn't wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So Israel left with the urging of their oppressors. And on top of that, they left with payment for their labor. That is generally not how prisoners get to leave. This is definitely of God. And just as God had told them, they wouldn't have enough time to fully prepare their bread. And so they left with it still in the kneading bowls, having no yeast in it. And as we talked about last week, they were commanded to every year thereafter celebrate a feast of unleavened bread for a week after the Passover. Then we can assume that it was probably a week before they were able to fully prepare their bread again. We don't know that for certain, but we do know that each day they ate unleavened cakes because they were hurried on their way and didn't have time to fully prepare them. So we don't know exactly how long that lasted, but I'm assuming that because they were rushed out and on the run, they had a week of not being able to fully prepare their bread. Now, something else that's very interesting about this passage is that it says they left with over 600,000 men. And if you remember at the very first of Exodus, it says that Jacob's family came to Egypt with 70. So 430 years later, there are over 600,000 men in their family. And that's not counting the women and the children and also the Egyptians that joined them. This where it says the mixed multitude that went up with them, we believe other Egyptians that left with them because mixed multitude means like mingled or interwebbed cultures. And so there's people of different cultures leaving with them and that would be Egyptians. So this 600,000 is not counting the women, the children, or those Egyptians that left with them. So depending on how many children they each had and how many Egyptians left with them, this is probably somewhere between two to four million people that are marching out of Egypt. So when they say a mass exodus, like they're not joking, like this is a lot of people. 
And God had told Abraham hundreds of years ago that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land and they would be afflicted for 400 years. Now, we have to assume that that wasn't an exact 400 years. It was around 400 years because it says that they were there for 430 years. But God also said that he would judge their oppressors and that they would leave with great possessions. And that's exactly what happened. And then at the end of this passage, it says that God kept a serious watch over them through that whole night. He was paying close attention to them. So every year thereafter, they would have a solemn day of ceremony that they would observe to the Lord because he had kept such serious watch over them that night. Now, also, if you'll notice this verse 37 says that they journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. Now, Succoth is the first place that Jacob settled after he left Midian. When he left his father-in-law's house and went back to meet his brother Esau, he settled in the land of Succoth because Esau tried to get him to come back with him, but he told him that his animals were tired and his family was tired and they weren't going to travel anymore for a little while. And so he stayed in this town named Succoth, which means booths. And the reason they called it that is because he built booths, which are probably like stables for his animals in this town. And so they left Ramses and went to that town, Succoth, at the beginning of their journey. Now, this town Ramses was mentioned in verse 11 of chapter 1 in Exodus And it says that this was a store city that the Israelites were building as slaves for the Pharaoh. And so that leads a lot of people to believe that Ramses was the Pharaoh at the time that the people were slaves. And that is possible, but there are two theories as to when this happened. And so I want you to read with me 1 Kings 6, 1. Many times we get dates in the Bible from other places in the Bible. So I want you to listen to this. This gives us the date of the Exodus. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Zeev, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So this is saying that Solomon began building the temple in the fourth year of his reign. He reigned from 970 to 930 BC. So the fourth year of his reign would be 966 BC. And it says that the Exodus was 480 years before that. So if you go by those years exactly and you take that 480 years literally, then the Exodus was in 1446 BC and Ramses was not the Pharaoh at that time. He didn't become Pharaoh till years later. So if you believe that that is a literal 480 years, then Ramses would have had to rename that city whenever he became the Pharaoh as his own city, which they did all the time. So that's very big possibility that he just renamed this city. And at the time that Moses was writing the book of Exodus, Ramses had become Pharaoh and renamed that city. Now, if you believe that Ramses was the Pharaoh that forced them to build this city, then that 480 years would not be exact. It would just be a rounding of 12 generations that's 40 years each. And in that case, you would believe in the later Exodus date, which is around 1275 B.C. 
So we're not exactly sure from the things that we read here. We just have to make inferences as to when the Exodus was. So why wouldn't Moses have told us this Pharaoh's name? It seems like a fairly important bit of information. But I think this was strategic because if you will remember over and over, God keeps saying that he's going to exalt himself over Egypt, over Pharaoh, that he is going to glorify his name. Whenever all this is over, everyone will know his name. The Egyptians will know who he is and what he does. All the people around will know his name. So I think the focus is supposed to be on who God is and not on who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is the loser, basically. God is the victor and he is the one whose name is important. And so I think it's purposeful that we don't even know who this Pharaoh is. Moses doesn't want to even give him that much credit. This Pharaoh and who he is is completely insignificant. That's what I think that they're trying to tell us. So we're not going to worry all that much about when all of these things are. We know that it happened and God puts the information in the Bible that is important for us to know. And so we will just go off of that. Now, let's read in chapter 13. There's one passage that we haven't gotten to in chapter 13. And that is the very end of that chapter. So we're going to start reading in chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest perhaps the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He didn't take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the Israelites marched out of Egypt like an army of people, it says. And they had known all of their lives that God would one day bring them into the land that he had promised to Abraham. This had been passed down by word of mouth through all the years. And Joseph, before he died at the end of Genesis, made the people swear that they would one day bury him in the promised land. And so it has been 360 years since Joseph died, but they have known that this is what they were supposed to do all of that time. And so they carried his bones out of Egypt with them whenever they left. Also, it would have been quicker for them to go north through the land of the Philistines, but God led them into the wilderness for a couple of reasons. Here it says that he led them out by the way of the wilderness because he knew that they might get scared whenever they saw the Egyptians approaching them and they might be tempted to go back and he wanted to remove all possibility of that. Now, if you'll also remember when God came to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses that one day after he had delivered the Israelites, that he would worship God again on that same mountain 
because he was on a mountain in Horeb when God came to him in the burning bush. And God said, you'll come back here and you'll worship me in this place after you've delivered the Israelites. And so if they would have gone by the way of the Philistines, they would have missed that mountain completely. But it is in this same wilderness area that God is leading them down. So he will eventually get to the mountain that God had told him. So God led them in this direction with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was making his presence completely visible to these people. And it says that he never left them. So he was being visibly present consistently and leading the way so that they knew where to go. Can you imagine if you had been in captivity for your entire life? And all of a sudden you're set free. It would feel great. But then again, you wouldn't have any sense of direction. You wouldn't know what you were doing, where to go from there, how to start this new life. And so God, he didn't just free the people. He stayed with them after he delivered them from their captivity because he knew they would feel completely lost and not know what to do. Now, you know, Moses had been out of the land of Egypt for 40 years before this, so he hadn't been in that area the entire time. And he also wasn't a captive, but the rest of the people had been prisoners their entire lives of the Egyptians. So God wanted them to know that he was with them and he was leading them and they were going to be okay. So how does God lead his people today? We might be tempted to wish that there was a pillar of cloud, right? That we could just see God's presence, that we knew he was here. And not only that we knew he was with us, but that he was leading the way. All we had to do was follow something that was visible, either a pillar of cloud or they had Jesus in the New Testament, how they could follow him specifically. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our lives would be easier if we were in that situation. But let me read you what Jesus himself said about this. This is in John 16, and we're going to read verses 7 and 13. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before his death. And he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then listen to what it says in 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. So Jesus himself says it's better for us that he isn't here, that we aren't following him, but that we have the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is because Jesus could lead, but he could only lead the people that were there present with him. And there wasn't a lot of individual leading in that way. It was more just collective leading. Same with this pillar of cloud. But now we each have the Holy Spirit living within us when we're believers. And the Holy Spirit can speak to us and lead us and do as this verse 13 said, tell us the things to come. Tell us where we need to go for our future, things like that. So we have the Holy Spirit when we pray. The Holy Spirit guides us. We also have the Bible. They didn't have all of these words written down that we have today. And let me tell you what 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says about the scriptures. 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible instructs us and corrects us and equips us for all good work. It teaches us the things of God. And so we have all of these words, which is God's collective word to his people. And we have the Holy Spirit, which speaks to each of us individually about each of our own personal experiences and the things that are going on in our own lives. Now, that is a little more difficult for us than the Bible because the words in the Bible are a little more concrete, although we still need the Holy Spirit to help us understand those. But knowing exactly where the Holy Spirit is leading us individually in our own lives is something that's difficult. So I want you to listen to James 1, 5 to 8. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if we don't know which way to go, if we don't know where God is leading us, then what we need to do is ask him for wisdom. It says here that if we ask him for wisdom, then he will give it to us. So we just need to ask him, what is it you want me to do? I want to follow you. I just need to know where you're leading. And if we are reading our Bible and praying and listening and paying attention, then I think it'll be made clear to us what God wants for us to do. One reason reading the Bible is so important in knowing what God wants us to do, even in our own individual lives, even if it may not speak to take this job or don't take this job or whatever that may be going on in our own lives, we do see experiences in the Bible with other people. When we read the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, we see other people and how they've lived their lives and how it worked out for them or it didn't, what may speak to us in our own personal lives. Also, we see instructions that God gives us all throughout the Bible as to how we should act and what we should do. But also, it shows us the character of God. God is just like any other person. The more time you spend with a person, the more you know them. The more you know how they're going to handle this situation or that situation. Think about your spouse or your best friend. The more time you spend with that person, the more you begin to realize, oh, if this happens, they'll probably handle it like this. And if that happens, they'll probably do this. It's the same with God. The more time we spend with him, the more we understand him, the more we know what he would do, what he would feel. And that leads us to know how we should act and feel and think. So that's the reason that the Bible is such a good tool to lead us. And then obviously prayer, asking God to guide us and then listening and paying attention to what he tells us. So I know this was a short episode and I'd like to move on, but if I go to the next chapter, it's going to be a long episode as opposed to a short episode. So we're going to end here this week. Next week, we will talk about God's complete total defeat over the Egyptians and the full liberation of his people. 
So make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Also, leave comments wherever you're listening. Leave me a five-star review. You can also email me at Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. Thanks and have a good day. Mm -hmm.